Hello everyone, welcome to SNIT. Studies in National and International Development is the longest running weekly interdisciplinary seminar series at Queen's University. Since 1983, SNIT has proudly hosted prominent Canadian and international scholars who bring fresh perspectives to issues of local, national, and global development. Please share our podcast with friends, family, and colleagues. We're glad to have you with us. So welcome everyone to the last SNID session of 2022. Uh, and so thank you all for joining us today. And for those of you who've been following us throughout the term, we really appreciate your presence and your continued support of our seminar series. First, we'd like to acknowledge that while this event is virtual, it is being jointly hosted by SNID, Studies in National and International Development, which is financially and infrastructurally supported by Queen's University. And Queen's is situated on the shores of Lake Ontario on the traditional territories of the Haudenosaunee Confederacy and the Anishinaabek Nation. This territory is included in the Dish With One Spoon Wampum Belt Covenant, which is an agreement between the Anishinaabe, Mississaugas, and the Haudenosaunee to peaceably share and care for the resources around the Great Lakes, including the lake on whose shores we reside, Lake Ontario. My name is Carolyn Prouse. I'm an assistant professor in geography and planning here at Queen's, and I co-chair the SNID seminar series with Dr. Aicha Tomach uh, and Monique Yesson-Sauz, our graduate student coordinator. Um, SNID is the longest running interdisciplinary seminar series at Queen's University, and we are committed to hosting anti-colonial and justice-oriented scholars, practitioners, and activists. And we were really excited when Vanessa Thompson reached out to ask if we would support a mini series on legacies of war, imperialisms, racisms, and transnational feminist solidarities. And this is the second session of the mini series. The first was held two weeks ago. Um, and we feel really fortunate as SNID uh, to be able to think together with today's incredible speakers and with Vanessa and Catherine Nazarek um, about global imperialisms and the different kinds of solidarities that we can take and indeed are already in formation. Um, that the, the scholars and the activists today will speak about um, across different territories and across space. And with that, I will pass it over to the mini series organizers, uh, Vanessa Thompson and Catherine Nazarek. Oh, you're muted, Catherine. <laughs> Off to such a good start. Thank you so much. Uh, when the Russian war in Ukraine unfolded in February 2022, we observed the continuing political silence around wars and aggressions that have cost many lives, destabilized living conditions, and disrupted the, genuine, the right to genuine safety and to seek refuge for decades. While some of us hoped that the emerging interest and critique of war in Ukraine would foster further transnational bonds, Many of us were appalled by the ways that this war was exceptionalized and how even solidarity was articulated in both nationalist and racialized forms. A racialized as well as anti-Black division shapes the perceptions as well as the politics of war. For many people on the globe, in Palestine, Afghanistan, Haiti, in Ethiopia's Tigray region, Yemen, Syria, as well as many other regions, war in its many forms, ranging from hot to cold, psychological and environmental, sanctions, state violence, or military interventions is a deadly reality. That war impacts gendered and marginalized folks hardest is also nothing new. At the same time, we are observing an increasing multipolar political formation that also puts certain old truths to test. A one-dimensional focus on imperialism or legacies of empire, as we've learned from anti-war feminists in Syria or Kurdish feminist activists, 
or recently from feminists in Ukraine, often only reinforces the violence that marginalized, that marginalized and racialized groups experience in various regions of the world. It is obvious that US imperialism and neocolonialism continues to exploit people's livelihoods, resources, and lands, often through war or proxy wars method. Here, we just need to think of the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan. US commands such as Southcom or AFRICOM, aggression in Libya or Haiti. However, various forms of authoritarianism and fundamentalisms often linked with context-specific legacies of empire, for example, Turkish nationalism or imperial origins of the state of Ethiopia are legacies that also ought to be taken seriously in anti-war politics and struggles towards feminist global solidarity. So a multi-directional critique and anti-war politics needs to attend to the many forms of imperialisms, link struggles against imperialism and authoritarianism, be it in their rather liberal or fundamentalist form, to create more livable futures for all that leave no one behind. I've learned from feminist groups in Syria, Sudan, and Libya, and they've called this feminist non-alignment from below, that this is a necessity, that it is a necessity to counter the politics of war with grounded, context-specific global solidarity. Such a politics then enables standing in fierce solidarity with protesters in Iran that are shaped by Kurdish struggle without relying neither on US imperialism nor feeding into anti-Muslim racism. It could, could allow for a politics of both ends, as Margot Okazavare often reminds us, as one imperialism cannot be fought uh, with another imperialism. At the same time, anti-war global infrastructures and connections would be needed to counter this logic, as well as to attend to the local formations of empire and authoritarianism, as well as fascisms. When Catherine and I thought about this mini-series, we decided to have our first event on the situation in Ukraine by, bringing black, by bringing together Black Roma and Ukraine feminist activists to counter the dominant narratives around the war and to engage with the perspective as well as resistances of multi-marginalized groups that often have critical stories to tell. With this second event, we aim to contribute to further conversations around wars that are often actively ignored in the dominant perceptions and politics of war. When attending to the global, we thereby do not mean the other wars, which is itself a mode of homogenization. We rather understand this as an engagement with the global and local as interrelated and connected, such as the forces that we come up against imperialisms, racisms, heteropatriarchy, racial capitalism, fundamentalisms, and increasing fascisms. We are grateful that our three discussants here have agreed to be in conversation because they not only work on forms of war that are ignored in many debates and conversations on war and solidarity, such as the war in Tigray, one of the largest conflicts in the world with genocidal implications, the decade-long war in, uh, against the Afghan population in Afghanistan, and the war against Kurdish people, including the recent uh, Turkish attack in northern Syria and northern uh, Iraq. Our discussions are also active in the struggles for justice, liberation, and peace. So we are grateful that our three panelists have agreed to join us um, today for this conversation and share their crucial insights and analysis. 
Elif Sarijan, Mariam Ravi, and Mabel Gebremedin, whom I will introduce to you now. Um, and I'll start with Mariam. Mariam Ravi is a representative of the Revolutionary Association of the Women of Afghanistan, RAVA. RAVA is the oldest political social organization of Afghan women struggling for peace, freedom, democracy, and women's rights in fundamentalism blighted Afghanistan since 1977. Then comes um, Elif. Elif Zarijan is a writer, translator, and a Kurdish activist. She's a social anthropologist and worked with the late Professor David Graeber at the London School of Economics during her postgraduate degree. She has lectured at a number of universities across Europe and North America on the topics of feminism, radical politics, and global history. Elif is community and partnerships lead for the radical publisher, The Left Book Club. And finally, we will hear from, from Mabel. Mabel Gebremedin is the founder and president of the Tigray Action Committee, a nonprofit committed to helping end the suffering of millions of Tigrayans due to the Tigray genocide. Mabel is committed to bringing awareness to the ongoing genocide in Tigray and building a stronger, peaceful Tigray. We are also very grateful that Mago, Mago Kazavaray, long-term friend and comrade who's active in anti-war feminist solidarity work since decades, has agreed to facilitate this conversation. Margot Kazavare is Professor Emeritia at San Francisco State University and a social justice activist and educator working on issues of militarism, armed conflict, and violence against women's examined intersectionally. She's a founding member of the International Women's Network Against Militarism and its US group Women for Genuine Security. She's president of the board of directors of the Association for Women's Rights in, in Development. Awit. She has a long-standing relationship to social justice work in South Korea and with the Women's Center for Legal Aid and Counseling in Palestine. She was also a founding member of the historic Black feminist Combahee River Collective. So Mariam will speak first. Um, Mariam, we're looking forward to, uh, to hearing your, um, your talk. Uh, thank you very much for everybody. Thank you for introduction. Um, I start again. Um, uh, first of all, on behalf of my organization, the Revolutionary Association of the Women of Afghanistan, I uh, would like to thank all of you for arranging uh, this uh, online meeting. Uh, as I told earlier, I'm coming from Afghanistan, where the most uh, horrific and brutal forms of violence uh, can be seen, where women uh, have lost their rights and dignity, uh, where they are not considered human beings anymore. And it's all because of the domination of the most ignorant religious fascist Taliban. Uh, I belong to such part of the world where the depth of the tragedy and abuse is not only that the women should not be heard or speak or seen, but also that they are totally imprisoned under hijab, the black uh, piece of cloth that covers them. And in today's century, uh, they are not allowed to go to school. Uh, they have lost their jobs. 
and not going to school and getting education, especially for younger girls, is the the most uh, in the biggest tragedy that uh, we uh, we face today. And this is all because of the sick mentality of the rulers we have now. Um, Actually, if we go back to the history of Afghanistan and the history of the world, we see that uh, there have been some key changes in Middle East over the last few decades. And one of them was the empowerment of the uh, Islamism and Islamic fundamentalism and uh, religious extremism. Uh, from the time that Muslim Brotherhood was built, it had a very close link, uh, and it still, it still has a very close link with the most reactionary, anti-democratic, and anti-power, anti-women powers uh, on the earth. One of the main characteristics of the Islamic fundamentalist creatures is that the inhuman um, attitude towards women and their misogynism that makes them very much different. In another important uh, sample of Islamic fundamentalist forces are that uh, they are acting as the puppets of capitalism, as the puppet of imperialist dominations, and of course, as the actors of the imperialist wars in our regions. Uh, What's being done by the fundamentalists in our devastated country is because of the existence of these ultra-reactionary religious uh, fundamentalist parties uh, who are uh, linked with the institutions such as CIA. And of course, they have also the support of different uh, governments around our country, like the Iranian regime, uh, the Pakistani intelligence, uh, Saudi Arabia, in Turkey, in many others uh, who are involved in Afghanistan in the four decades uh, in supporting fundamentalism. Uh, as you probably know, fundamentalists uh, have a long uh, period of ruling in Afghanistan, and the most well-known fundamentalists, such as Rabbani, Masood, Gulbuddin, Mazari, Sayaf, Dostum, and many others, who were the masters in the bloodbath and looting of lives of our people, the honors and properties of our uh, poor people. Uh, they were all those who were pumped with the funds, with the weapons, with the political support coming directly from CIA, especially during the Soviet invasion. And they, uh, the, um, puppet regime, pro-Soviet puppet regime in one side and the fundamentalists on the other side uh, actually eliminated all the democratic and progressive and leftist movements during 70s. And today, after 9-11, uh, the US and NATO invaded Afghanistan uh, with the deceiving slogan of democracy, women's rights, and war on terror. They actually used these slogans to justify their military occupation. And uh, today they are saying that they are very much surprised. And they are even talking of about a strategic failure 
uh, after the fall of Kabul. Uh, but the reality is that we believe that everything went according to the plan. The US imperialism in according with usual policy spent 20 years in backing the rotten and corrupt regime of Karzai and Ghani and empowering jihadi drug lords, mafia leaders, and in the meanwhile, dealing with Taliban. Why we believe that they dealt with Taliban, why we believe that they supported Taliban, there are very open facts um, about them. For example, if you have followed the news from Afghanistan since nine, 2019, um, the release of the several Taliban leaders from Guantanamo, uh, the removal of some of the names of the terrorist leaders from the blacklist of United Nations. Uh, the most important is the, the signing of the security agreement, which is stop any kind of military action against each other between Taliban and the US military. Uh, opening an establishment of office for Taliban in Qatar, which gives them a lot of uh, legitimacy, which gives them a lot of moral power. Uh, the release of more than 5,000 uh, prisoners from the Afghan jails, they were all parts of these agreements before Taliban were installed in Kabul, before they were given the chance to enter the capital city. And everybody knows that on 15th of August, 2021, uh, Taliban seized the power for a second time. And since then, uh, we are facing human rights catastrophe and the complete collapse of human life. After the United States and NATO betrayed and handed over Afghanistan to Taliban, uh, we saw that the so-called achievements of 20 years, the so-called false slogans of democracy and women's rights collapsed in 20 minutes. And our, the, our people since then faced deeper crisis. Though the Taliban uh, Emirates announced that there is a general amnesty, nobody will be published, but according to the Sharia law, the Islamic religious law, they are not only killing and kidnapping, but the most astonishing uh, punishments, just such as stoning to death, flogging in public, hanging in public, and all kinds of other torture and barbarism can be seen in Afghanistan. It was only last week when 12 people, including few women, were flogged in public in a sports stadium because the sport and games and music is banned uh, according to the Taliban uh, beliefs. Taliban also claim that they are changed, they are uh, modern. It's only because they want the financial and diplomatic support and recognition and lifting of sanctions that's imposed against them. And they, we believe that soon the Western governments will provide all, uh, would go on with all their uh, demands. But we believe that how we expect some changes from the most medieval-minded uh, groups whose life is associated with the bloodshed, with the suicide, with the explosions, and inhuman violence against women. Uh, unfortunately, living in Afghanistan and living in the capital city of Kabul those days, 
I believed that the whole country completely uh, collapsed. And since then, we are experiencing the ex extreme hunger, the highest unemployment uh, in the history, because all the government offices, NGOs, the schools, big and private companies and businesses are closed. And it affected a lot. It, uh, uh, we are seeing a complete financial downfall. According to some statistics, 95% of the population are food insecure and 50% are living under the line of poverty. Uh, actually, it's not just the, the first year Afghanistan is experiencing uh, in the last four decades uh, this war, but this war also taught us another lesson. It proved that the regional countries who are uh, involved in Afghanistan and the Western powers who were present in Afghanistan, they always uh, supported the biggest killers, the biggest abusers, and they, the fate of Afghan people, the life of Afghan people, and the destiny of Afghan women had no value for them. The most important for them was to achieve their own economic and strategic goals and interests. Uh, if we see that today Afghanistan is uh, a battleground for not only the, uh, the Taliban uh, in the interest that the uh, United States has in Afghanistan, but also there are many other governments like China and Russia who are deeply involved in Afghanistan. CIA continues supporting the new forms of uh, uh, fundamentalists. Daesh is increasingly supported and their uh, networks is being separate, especially in the northern parts of Afghanistan where we are sharing border with the, uh, Russia. And as I said before, the neighboring intelligences of Iran and Pakistan also, are, each one of them have their own uh, puppets. Um, we believe that uh, if according to the wishes of the Western government, Taliban continue surviving, the only demand that the Western government have to, from Taliban is to make an ex exclusive, uh, inclusive government, which means bringing all the ethnics of Afghanistan. Or for example, they are pressurizing Taliban to reopen the girls, of the school, the girls for schools. But actually, uh, we should remember that the strategic interest that most of these uh, imperialist governments have in Afghanistan is dealing with Taliban and supporting barbaric uh, jihadis and Taliban and Daesh. These are the safeguard for their interests. Even some female figures uh, are pretended to be anti-Taliban, but unfortunately we see that these are showpieces. They are those who are enlarged and uh, made famous by the Western media and by the CIA especially. Uh, the jihadi fundamentalist warlords are presented as the only um, re so-called resistance against Taliban, but this is not the reality. The people of Afghanistan have learned from the history a lot especially in the last 20 years, that 
the values such as justice, freedom, human rights, and secular democracy. We are especially emphasizing on a secular democracy or those values that cannot be gifted by any foreign power, by any foreign uh, government. These human values can be um, institutionalized and can be uh, brought in the society only through the struggles and efforts of the deprived and oppressed masses of Afghanistan, in which case no force will be able to threaten that, that and to take it back from us. Uh, if on the one side in the last year we were witnessing of Taliban being in power for a second uh, term, but on the, other, uh, on the other side, we also witness the courageous protest of the Afghan women. In the most important voice we want to be heard from Afghanistan is the voice of resistance, especially the resistance of uh, women. We saw in the first days of Taliban that as soon as they took power, women from all different ethnics, women from all different provinces of Afghanistan um, had a glorious uh, act of uh, protesting and saying no to the Taliban. And uh, they kept hold the, uh, the, the slogan against Taliban. Um, and it is proving that the Taliban will not be able uh, to keep the Afghan women in the same chains of tyranny as they did in the first period of their rule. Uh, here talking to you comrades today, I just want to say that we all know the, the difficulties and the extremely dangerous path that we have taken, we all, uh, not just in Afghanistan, but in Iran and Kurdistan also. But in the meanwhile, uh, we Afghan women would like to say that we are committed to the uncompromising struggle against fundamentalism, against imperialism, and we will not neglect to expose the traitors and their puppets. Uh, we know that the situation is very difficult. It's suffocating in our society. But in the meanwhile, we believe that there's no way out to the current miserable situation, expect the struggle for liberation. And the real resistance is inside Afghanistan. The progressive and democratic forces need to be empowered, need to be supported. Education plays a very important role, even in a small number. But if uh, women are mobilized, especially from the poorest um, and remote areas of Afghanistan, they can play a very important uh, uh, role. The uprising and demonstration uh, should continue and it's already happening. It should become uh, bigger and more uh, regular. Uh, and these uh, spontaneous and self-organized uh, and self-rised uprising should be more uh, joined with uh, not just one uh, region or one ethnic of Afghanistan, but all over the country. Uh, we, the representatives, uh, representatives of the Revolutionary Association of the Women of Afghanistan, 
believe uh, that Rawa is the only anti-fundamentalist and women's rights organization that fights for independence, secular democracy, and social justice. Uh, we are the oldest one, uh, and this was uh, founded by Mina uh, in 1977, who herself lost her life, who was assassinated uh, by the fundamentalist groups, but who believed that only political changes can bring rights to women, can guarantee and protect the, um, the equality for women, uh, and can fight, demolish the uh, discrimination against women. And that's why we proudly say that we are a political organization. Uh, and from the very beginning, uh, Rawa, without any fear, have been in the forefront of exposing injustices of imperialism, of fascism, and patriarchy in our society, which also, because we are living in a very feudal system, patriarchy has a strong root in our society. Uh, apart from organizing demonstrations and meetings, uh, Rawa continues. It's an uh, underground organization, a semi-secret organization. That's the reason that I don't want to show my face to be recognized because I'm working and living inside Afghanistan. But we are also providing um, social and humanitarian services. And we are especially working very hard for providing literacy classes and home-based classes as a tool to empower women, as a tool to encourage women and build uh, confidence for them to play the important role that they have in the social and political life of their country. Since the schools are banned for girls, uh, we have started these network of the home-based classes where girls of young age of uh, 12 and 13 years old can come and study English and science subjects. Uh, and even these humanitarian projects such as food distribution or the health teams that you are running and they are going in different uh, provinces of Afghanistan and income generating projects for women that we have uh, and it's a way of building network with the women masses. They're all run uh, under very critical security situation all across Afghanistan. But if we were able to continue our work, it's all thanks to the uh, supporters and friends that we have. The, the male and female supporters inside Afghanistan but also the network of supporters that we have outside of Afghanistan who try to collect uh, small donations for us uh, and make us able to continue our survival in Afghanistan. Uh, before ending, I just uh, would like uh, that, to say that Rawa is standing in the sympathy with the all um, glorious uprising of our Iranian sisters, we are deeply inspired by the Kurdish sister fight in Rojava, and we swear by the blood of the all revolutionary martyred women from all parts of the world to continue the same path of struggle as they did. Uh, Rawa would like to seek for any opportunity to set foundations of a great practical and effective unity of all those uh, organizations and groups and individuals uh, who are trying to build justice and peace and stability mm. in the world. Uh, and we hope 
that this uh, sympathy and solidarity of women uh, become stronger and women, the world will be more aware about the strength of uh, women in women's fight. Thank you very much. Thank you so, so much, Mariam, um, for the analysis work you do and for sharing the really revolutionary work that Rava continues to do um, in Afghanistan and beyond. Thank you. I will not say much more. I will um, give it over to Alif. Um, and yes, um, Alif will be the next um, speaker. Um. Hi. Uh, thank you very much, uh, Vanessa, and thank you so much for everyone who's put in work to organise uh, this mini-series and this discussion. Um, you know, we often say discussions feel timely and we often say that, you know, this is a very crucial discussion and inevitably every time it does feel that way, but particularly now uh, from a Kurdish perspective, talking about global war and solidarities, the legacies of, you know, imperialism and um, and empire and so on feels really, really important and quite literally a matter of life and death for millions of people in Kurdistan, but of course um, in many, many parts of the world as well. Before I begin, I want to um, remember with you all the... Uh, the revolutionary martyrs uh, Nagahan Akarsel, who was uh, recently assassinated by uh, Turkish intelligence forces in uh, South Kurdistan, in Suleymaniye. I want to remember here with you all Gina Amini, the 22-year-old Kurdish woman who was uh, murdered by uh, Iran's so-called morality police. And I also want to remember uh, Sakine Jansas, Fidan Doan and Leila Shailemez, who were three revolutionary Kurdish women who were assassinated almost 10 years ago. So January 2023 will be 10 years since they were assassinated in the centre of Paris, again by Turkish intelligence uh, forces. And we, we're, we're having this discussion today at a time where Every single part of Kurdistan, Turkey, Iran, Iraq, Syria, is basically in a state of war. And this is um, a war against a people, a nation, but also not just the war against the nation, also a war, a very brutal, a very uh, ruthless uh, war against a alternative that we, I will touch on a little bit more. Um, in a second, and a war that was always unfair because one of the forces that is at war with the Kurdish people is the second largest NATO army, the Turkish army, and that was already a unfair war, but particularly recently, uh, the Turkish army have been using chemical weapons against uh, Kurdish fighters, so an already unfair war has become ever more unfair. Um, so it's a bit difficult to try to, to capture 
all the impacts and the and the and the effects of uh, what is happening. It also feels a bit difficult to capture everything that is happening, all the all the elements of the current situation when um, a mass of a geography that is home to between forty to fifty million people is being attacked by many many sides and many angles. But I will try and speak a bit about the different the different parts of this of the war against the uh Kurdish people but also um this alternative that um we will speak about it's really amazing uh sharing a discussion with um um with other women with uh women from with from Afghanistan and from Tigray and so on and i think it's especially important that we can have these discussions in a in a united way in thought, even if we as individuals are obviously um, work on various different um, parts of our struggles, perhaps because the enemies of humanity are united. There is absolutely no doubt in that. And even though sometimes there seems to be political differences between some of these forces, ideologically and strategically, they have no qualms with each other whatsoever. And I think that's quite important to understand. And so, you know, when we under, when we talk about what is happening all around the world, I think it's important to understand that. And thank you, Mariam, for um, le uh, laying some of those out so um, eloquently and so beautifully. Um, I think when we talk about what's happening in Kurdistan, it's it's important to know that there, as many people have probably heard, there is uprisings and protests all around uh, Iran uh, that were triggered and started in uh, Kurdistan, but which what we call East Kurdistan, so uh, what is known as Northwest Iran. There, those uprisings triggered by at the funeral of uh, the twenty-two-year-old Gina Amini have turned into a cry for an alternative Iran. And I wish we had more time to go into the history of um, why Iran is where it is today, but I know that we don't. But I think one thing to say is that when we talk about many of these, many of the state of things that the West as a whole and, um, and capitalist patriarchal nation states are at, are at the are at the root of where Iran is and where actually Turkey is where Syria is and where Iraq is whenever they have had a choice they will choose some of the most fundamentalist sections um of any place because they have no qualms with fundamentalist um fundamentalist forces that are the enemy of women democracy and um and nature there is no qualms with that whatsoever. We know that historically, whether it was in 1979 in Iran or in the 1940s and 50s and 60s all around in Turkey, that um, particularly the US has been involved in operations where names of progressives and lefties were, would be handed over to, in the case of Turkey, um, fascist paramilitaries or in the case of Iran fundamentalist uh, Islamist forces so 
those are the some of the some of the historic impacts but when we talk about what some of the impacts of what's happening today the direct effects of the war is that um especially um in terms of you know being being carried out by the turkish state is an all out war against a force against the kurdish women's movement the kurdish the kurdish freedom movement that is not just in not just in the in the struggle for the freedom of the kurdish people but also for an alternative uh kurdistan alternative middle east but also potential you know alternative world a system that we call democratic confederalism which is based on the principles of uh, direct radical democracy, women's liberation, and e- ecological justice, which also bases its um, organizing on cooperative economies and um, communes and assemblies and autonomous women's structures at every level of administration. So when we see the Turkish state using chemical weapons against Kurdish fighters, it's not just to suffocate them in the fight against a colonial power it's also to suffocate them in the fight for an alternative uh, system when we see iran um uh, sentencing hundreds or if not thousands of people to uh, the death penalty using um lo- using uh using live bullets and attacks against protesters these are against a people of course these are against uprisings but they're also against alternatives the warning time and time again is that if you dare to if you dare to imagine and put into practice and struggle for an alternative world then you will not just be killed but you will also be but you will also be subjected to torture in every single way and we see this particularly in the way women are affected in war right in the violence the rape the sexual violence that any occupying force uses against uh women but also society as a whole and when we um and the 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 effects of that and this is some of the this is some of the things that um you know uh, the organizers in their introduction also touched upon is the imbalance and the the um the 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 irony or the um the contradictions in how solidarity is given out you know when the wars that these powers are involved in either they support either they give a green light to or they are directly carrying out themselves create displaced peoples that is seen as a crisis but when it's a war that is also in the benefit of uh, these powers it's seen as solidarity and i think this kind of conversation especially is particularly important at a time where we're seeing some of the most um some of the most uh uh, deeply rooted Euro- European and, um, of course, the US as well, states involved in whether it's the arms trade and or other or other um, brutal trades at the same time being able to claim that they are engaged in feminist foreign policy, and I think when we talk about these these um, these uh, these kind when we have these kind of conversations when we talk about war and. Uh, solidarities it's also very crucial to point out the contradictions and the almost you know the mockery of 
claiming that you are engaged in feminist foreign policy when you are trading arms with a state like Turkey. And a state like Turkey is not just involved in the you know massacres and um, ethnic cleansing of the Kurdish people, but also in the case of uh, Tigray, it's also uh, providing uh, the Bayraktar drone against uh, the people of Tigray or is involved in supporting and um, and providing space for some of the most fundamentalist sections of uh, what is happening in Afghanistan and of course many many more that we um, that um, we perhaps don't have time to discuss discuss today and I think it's important to mention this because when we talk about imperialism often what we limit our analysis to is you know the us and uh the uk and so on which of course should constantly be spoken about we should never give those a miss because they're the big brothers right but it's important that we don't do this at the expense of some of the more new imperialism so not necessarily neo imperialisms because that's these states involved in a new you know in different types of imperialisms but there's also new imperialisms in the form of turkey and in the form of other you know more localized or regional um colonial powers and that's that's really really important to talk about and also in the case of the kurdish uh movement i think or the kurdish people it's also really important to um different to have an analysis that isn't just limited to the physical warfare that we can see even though sadly most of the time people aren't talking about that either but there's the Turkish state is also involved in a very sophisticated form of special warfare against the Kurdish people against uh against society as a whole whether that's from the you know, the, in, the quite literally the injection of drugs into uh, Kurdish towns and cities to pacify Kurdish youth or um, the isolation of political prisoners, including uh, Abdullah Öcalan and the thousands and thousands of other political prisoners in Turkey or, um, or you know, you know, kind of like uh, false flag operations like, you know, blaming the brutal Istanbul uh, bombings on uh, the PKK to be able to use it as an excuse to uh, bomb and uh, invade uh, Rojava, West Kurdistan, so northern Syria once again. And it's important to be vigilant of, of, of these types of warfare as well, and how that also connects to the criminalization of our struggles. You know, the Kurdish movement is not just one of the biggest social movements in the Middle East, but it's also one of the biggest social movements in Europe. The mobilization power it has after decades and decades of organizing and mobilizing its base is it doesn't it doesn't really have a match, in, particularly in in Europe. And this is despite being perhaps one of the most criminalized movements um, again, in Europe, um, I think in um, in the US and other places, it's it's a bit of a different situation because there also isn't as much of a population of Kurdish people. But of course, the criminalization uh, reaches those shores as well. And I think it's important to understand the level of criminalization in which uh, the the day to day lives of politically active Kurdish people uh are impacted whether this is um you know 
in um, in parts of Europe having uh, issue having issues with, um, you know, I don't know, bank accounts or, of course, like imprisonment, being threatened by having your children taken away from you for your political activity. These are also um, the way the the way European states and the West collaborates with um, uh, powers like Turkey and um, and uh, others as well. Now, I think one of the things to very briefly touch on before I before I wrap up is that despite all of this going on, despite the normalized uh, fascism that the that the Kurdish people face, whether that's in Iran or Turkey or Syria or still to an extent in in Iraq, is that there is a resistance and there is a struggle and there is an alternative being fought for, led by Kurdish women, um, that is not just to democratize the way we live in particular states, but also democratize our own societies internally as well. So a, a radical democracy that is based on women's liberation and um, ecological justice is is being struggled for and put into practice exactly at the same time as fighting against colonial powers. This was happening when the there was the fight against Daesh, ISIS. This was this is happening in the fight against um, Turkish uh, invasions and occupations, and this is if this is happening at the while uh, Kurdish people are also rising up against uh, the uh, the Iranian state as well. So I think it's important to understand that and just recently a few weeks and actually almost a month ago now in Berlin um there was the women weaving future conference which was yet another step in in the direction of what the Kurdish women's movement calls world women's democratic confederalism there was 800 participants um and uh, delegates from many many movements from Abi Ayala to every part of the Middle East to parts of Europe and uh, many many um, corners of the world as well, discussing how we can put our alternative into practice and how we can unite with the awareness that the the enemies of humanity are united. And I'm, I hope that we can have a little bit more of a discussion about that today. Thank you very much for having me. Thank you so, so much, um, Elif, for, for yeah, the analysis, all the work you do, and the, I think also really fleshing out these important connections in terms of how these wars are connected, how the war industries are connected, also with regards to the connection of political ideologies. Um, and I think, yeah, that's also very timely then that Mayabel will come in um, talking about the genocide in Tigray currently going on and um, the work that um, her committee and the committee she's involved with um, is doing. We're grateful to have you, um, Abel. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. I'm just going to read a bit of what I wrote for my speech, and I'm going to do it as quickly as I can to make sure that we have enough time for a conversation. Um, but it is an honor to be a part of this today. Can you hear me? I want to make sure I can hear it. Hello? Can yep. you guys hear me? Can hear you. Yeah. Oh, okay. <laughs> Thank you. Sorry about that. Okay. Um, Hi, all. My name is Matmal Gavramedhi, and I'm the president and co-founder of Tigray Action Committee. Our mission is to do all we can to end the ongoing genocide happening in Ethiopia. We do this by building awareness, meeting with government officials throughout the world, and by doing on-ground work. 
in Tigray specifically. We have multiple feeding centers and offer direct support to Tigrayans in Tigray and in Sudan. My personal mission in life is to make sure the world is aware of Tigray's women. The women of Tigray have experienced some of the worst things imaginable. Over 130,000 of Tigray's women have experienced CRSV, which is conflict-related sexual violence. Um, the lack of solidarity that uh, Tigray's women have faced has forced the women of Tigray to stand alone, to fight against the aggression of Ethiopia and air trust federal armies on their own. Tigray's women are not victims. No, they're survivors. They have made a choice, a choice to do all they can to save their sisters, aunts, mothers, and overall community a choice to save themselves. They're not only surviving CRSV, but also a man-made famine. They have witnessed almost a million Tigrayans perish due to this genocide. The international community also had a choice and instead of has chosen not to save the women of Tigray, they have chosen to allow them to rot. Solidarity builds community and community is what we all need the most. The lack of solidarity and allyship we Tigrayans have experienced for these past two years has taught us that we are all that we have, that no one is going to save our families. Yet we have not given up on the international community. Instead, we continue to do all we can to build relationships with other marginalized people. We understand that together, the marginalized people of the world can achieve more. Most recently, on November 2nd, a cessation of hostilities was signed between Ethiopia's federal government and members of Tigray's government. The COH negotiated food aid. Um, this is one of the most shameful acts to have occurred. Um, essentially what we've done is we have allowed food and necessity a right to be negotiated. And once uh, a regime is allowed without any type of accountability to use food as a weapon of war, to use rape as a weapon of war, they will continue to do so. And they will continue to do it to others, not just one specific group. And that's what's happened in Ethiopia. Um, the, the war on Tigray is not the only war that's being currently fought in Ethiopia. There are war on the poorest of the poor in Ethiopia. Um, there are issues happening in Oromia, there are issues happening in Somali, there are issues happening throughout Ethiopia. The biggest issue currently, obviously, is in Tigray. The cessation of hostility was meant to bring some peace to Tigray, yet peace has, has not come. Instead, Tigrayan women are being re-raped, being told that because they reported their rapes, they were being raped again. Um, and aid is still yet to reach, reach the majority of Tigray. So currently, there have been a few uh, trucks with USAID and WFP um, medicinal aid and food aid that has entered the capital city of Tigray, but that does not mean the majority of Tigray is eating. Instead, the, the trucks that have come in have been very minimal. Um, the most that we saw was 15 trucks in one day, whereas Tigray needs at least 100 to 150 a day, uh, trucks, full trucks full of aid to actually be able to survive this ongoing genocide. I'm really hopeful that um, through this conversation that we're having today, we will be able to build solidarity and thus community. And I'm just really grateful to, to be included in this conversation. I'm gonna do this, I'm gonna keep it brief so that we can continue. I know that we only have about a half hour to 40 minutes left. And so I can end it there. Thank you. Thank you so much, Marba. Um, maybe I know that <clears throat> that Margot has some questions already, and maybe then you you we can start with you also because you really limited your um, your contribution so much. Thank you. Yeah, first of all, thank you very much to all the ways that uh, you all made the connections very much needed. Um, and I have a couple of questions um, that I want to um, start with, and you know the the first question is you know, has to do with um, this question of solidarities. As you all said, the elite 
have a deep solidarity thing going, right? In, in all the ways that you described. And so from your perspective, what would a feminist transnational, you know, however you want to describe the ways that you just talked, what would be the key principles of that kind of a solidarity? And some of you touched on it, and I think it's worth spending time here to answer that question. And I also invite people in the chat to um, list your principles, feminist, transnational, um, anti-imperialist, anti-colonial, anti-misogynist, all the antis you know, that we talked about. What would be the important principles? And uh, yeah, Mabel, why don't we start with you as Vanessa suggested? Absolutely. So the issues that we faced um, within Tigray and Ethiopia overall is that a lot of the, the feminist organizations that have been within Ethiopia for a while have essentially ignored what's happening to the women of Tigray. And so the principles of, of feminism has been essentially used against Tigrayan women, which is something that we would never imagine. Um, and so when we're asking for, for feminist solidarity, we're really asking for our sisters throughout the world and um, feminist allies <laughs> who, are, who may not identify as women to, to stand with us, to stand with us against what is happening to, to the women of Tigray. Um, my understanding of feminism and as one main principle in feminism is for women's rights, right? And so what Tigray's women have done is that not only have they stood up, but they've also fought in different ways. They've resisted uh, occupational ship through different ways. One way being fighting back physically by joining armed resistance, but also through voting. They've also confirmed, uh, excuse me, the constitution within Ethiopia legalizes um, regional elections. And the way that this war on or genocide on Tigray has started was through a regional election. And the majority of the people that voted on that day were women. And so, as a woman rights um, advocate, it's important for me to remind the world that they're not just fighting through physical force. They're not just fighting through surviving and trying to feed their families and, and whatnot. They're also fighting through legal uh, actions, through civic actions, through many, many ways. And so I would, <laughs> I would hope feminists throughout the world would, would wanna have some solidarity with us on that point. Um, and then you said international, I'm sorry, what was the second part? Of the question? Uh, I think I think because we're running out of time, let sure, me ask the other speakers. Yeah, yeah. So just in in a word, I know it's complicated. What would be a principle? My bell. Just just in a word, because you told us a lot. Yeah. Oh, I'm so sorry. I thought we were moving. To the next a, yeah, we uh, are. But just to have you summarize, just quickly. In a word, a principle. I'm so sorry, my mind is all over the place. <laughs> skip me, skip me. I'll come back, skip me. Okay, we'll come back. Okay, uh, Mariam, please. Principles of solidarity. Mariam, are you still here? Yes. Uh, okay. Yeah. Um, can you? Yeah. Please. Um, can you share uh, well, with us uh, your what? Uh, sorry, I, I'm not sure if I heard the question rightly. I think that uh, being 
against, uh, according to our experience, being against fundamentalism and believing on secularism, which kind of guaranteed the rights of women and makes them free of the uh, misogynism inside the religion is very much uh, important uh, for the basis of such a um, solidarity. As I told you, uh, for example, WikiLeaks uh, exposed a, a document about Afghanistan uh, where uh, the Western powers um, were, were requested from the United, uh, United States that they should uh, uh, bring up some popular uh, feminist uh, um, leaders in the society. I'm talking about September 11th, the first years, 20 years back. And that's how a lot of um, so-called feminist activists exist in Afghanistan. But if you look at them, uh, though they are famous, they have uh, well-known in the world, they have been um, awarded with the prizes and recognition and fame and everything. But if you look at their political mentality, they are somehow pro-fundamentalist. They are linked with the uh, warlords, fundamentalist warlords. And they do not see the root of the, their misogynism. And that's why, at least according to the experience we have in Afghanistan, it's very much important. There are a lot of uh, groups who are believing on the anti-imperialist, anti-colonialist, but also anti-fundamentalist and believing on secularism is very important. Thank you. Thank you. And Ayla. Thank you for that question, Margot. I think it's really important to flesh that out. I just want to say when we talk about uh, feminist transnational solidarity. We really, really in the you know in the last however many decades or a century, it, feminist struggle and international struggle has of course come a really, really long way. So in many ways, we obviously don't have to recreate the wheel. There's very beautiful foundations that we can also take from, very beautiful histories of uh, solidarity that we can take from. But I think saying that. The, even like the many gains of women, whether that's the co-chair system that the Kurdish women's movement has implemented or reproductive rights that has happened, of course, on national levels, but also through international solidarity and other forms, they're also not guaranteed. So I think a transnational uh, solidar feminist transnational solidarity is part of that is to defend the gains that we have because they're not guaranteed forever. Mm -hmm. So I think that's really important that we are um, united in that defense. And I think also um, we are united in um, and we have solidarity or have a common understanding of common struggle in fighting against this, this um, these strategies of special warfare, which ultimately are about breaking a society's ability to defend itself and to be itself. So I think that's definitely a very important solidarity is to support ourselves in our ability to defend ourselves. And um, and I think if I was to be able, if I was to summarize it in one word, I think the principle of of feminist transnational solidarity must be rooted in a principled freedom. So there is no justice or there is no democracy. There is there is there is no. This, there is no women's liberation if it isn't rooted in freedom and meaningful freedom. Thank you so much. And um, just a point of order here, we'll be opening the uh, floor for questions. 
uh, as soon as um, I ask one more question in about three minutes. Um, and that question is, I just asked about solidarity and I'd like each of you, um, uh, Mariam, Aleph and uh, Mabel to talk to us a bit about what is your vision of genuine security? What is your vision? And I know that's also a big question, but if you could just, you know, give us maybe a principle of, you know, or a value that you think is fundamental to genuine security, what would that look like? And this time, uh, Mariam, should I start with you? And Mabel, get ready because I'm coming to you. I'm ready if you'd like me to go, oh, but I think you, okay. you asked for Miriam. <laughs> <laughs> uh, okay, why don't, why don't you go ahead, Mabel and Mariam, I'll come back to you second and then I'll have last. Okay, so my is a bit of a, of a double answer. And so being that I passed my last one, I just wanted to really quickly back <laughs> touch on it. <laughs> um, what I was hearing Mariam say as well as how, what I was trying to, to say as well is that feminism has been used as a weapon against us. It's been, the term itself, the name has been weaponized against Tigray's women, against Tigrayans in general throughout the world, not just um, in Tigray or in Ethiopia. Feminist organizations in Ethiopia have uh, been not only just against Tigray's women, but they have been against Tigray's people. They have been pro-government, anti-human. And so when I'm asked a question about feminism, I'm immediately trying to, to think it through because it's been used against us in, in ways that we were never expecting of, you know? As a woman, um, I've never expected other women to use women's rights and women's issues against me. So that's why it was a bit hard for me to answer that question. But a vision of uh, genuine security for, for Tigray and Tigrayans, when I think of what Tigray needs, I think that Tigray needs self-sufficiency and interdependence. Tigray is not an island. It is within a country. It is a part of Ethiopia. And so the reason that we are so in such a bad place right now is due to this famine. The famine that has been man-made, and this is not just the first time that Tigray has witnessed uh, or experienced a man-made famine. I was born during the last man-made famine. There was a man-made famine even previous to that. And so this is something that is constantly happening to Tigrayans. And so when I think of, uh, of genuine security, I understand that we need to be self-sufficient. Tigrayans need to be able to take care of themselves, of ourselves. And when um, Eritrean forces or Ethiopian forces come into Tigray and burn every single crop they can find, kill all the animals and all types of food, and then the Ethiopian government blocks aid, food aid from coming in, we don't have the ability to be self-sufficient. We can no longer take care of ourselves. Instead, we become dependent on the world's aid programs and other NGOs to provide that aid for us. So self-sufficiency is a way that will um, genuine, uh, excuse me, is a way that will uh, confirm that we're able to survive and that there is a Tigray tomorrow. Oh, my time, I'm sorry, I'll go fast. Okay, and then also <laughs> interdependence because I understand that Tigray again is not an island and we need to be uh, in, positive relationship and community with the, our neighboring um, nations. So, sorry. <laughs> I'm sorry to cut you off. Uh, <laughs> uh, Mariam, if you're ready, please. Your vision yes. of, uh, yes, your vision mm -hmm. of genuine security and by, I, I don't mean you individually, oh. obviously. 
Yeah, I know that. Uh, well, again, seeing uh, the situation we are going through, as I uh, told during my uh, speaking, that uh, we are actually now living in a society completely deprived of the very basic rights, which means we are not uh, treated as human being. We are not allowed to uh, walk outside the house alone by ourselves. We are not allowed to uh, walk outside the house in the in the dressing we want. Even the the dress we wear, the long uh, piece of cloth that covers us, according to the um, rules, should be in black color. We are not able to to breathe freely, uh, and it all makes so hard. Even if we cannot compare our situation with the movements and feminist uh, fight in Iran, in Kurdistan, where women um, can uh, freely and independently uh, at least have the choices which form of uh, fight they want, how they want to go on to achieve uh, their causes. And that's one of the reasons that living in a very um, conservative and fundamentalist dominated society living that women have even not many options uh, to uh, fight back. But anyway, um, we have learned that through the uh, 40 years of our experience that any anti-fundamentalist uh, fight, anti-imperialist uh, and anti-discrimination fight uh, can be achieved through education uh, and awareness. That has been like a key tool for us because in conservative societies such as Afghanistan, um, to build up this education in confidence for women, to build up this uh, empower, empowerment for women, uh, to stand up and fight for their rights itself is a revolution, itself is an achievement. And uh, okay. this is the least vision we have for ourselves that the larger number of women uh, can appear, can mobilize, can believe on the political and social struggle for their rights. Okay, thank you so much. Uh, Ellen. Thank you very much. I know we're limited for time. So just very quickly, mm -hmm. a vision of genuine security from the Kurdish women's movement perspective is one that is rooted in self-defense. So self-defense in every area of life, whether that's physical self-defense in the fight against an occupying force, whether that's a ideological, political, systemic self-defense in the form of, um, you know, autonomous women's structures and, um, you know, in the or that already exists, like um, autonomous women's uh, justice committees, and also or or whether that's uh, internally in you know even in like the domestic sphere in in terms of um you know when it like uh, your your own partner or um sometimes children as well so self defense in every area of life and understanding the self defense on a systemic ideological philosophical and physical sense and all of this all being rooted in the principle of freedom so free freedom comes up here again thank you thank you so much uh, before i open it to the uh, folks for questioning uh, or questions let me just ask a rhetorical question um, Ella, you talked about the Worldwide Women's Confederation. I think that's the correct, but please um, 
right in the chat if it isn't. So I'm wondering, this is a question for us internally, right? Who, who must we become as we're in the struggle against imperialism and colonialism so that when the day comes and there's freedom and self-determination and all of those things that we won't end up recreating what we just created, that we just transformed. And I'm sort of asking us to think about the own contradictions in our movement, in our life, uh, and the implosions that we've seen in various ways, right? So who must we become? I'll leave that as a rhetorical question. Oh, thank you. Women, World Women's Democratic Confederation. Thank you. Um, so if anyone has a question, now's the time. Uh, we have, we still have 14 minutes, so that's really good news. Um, are there questions from our um, participants who are um, in the audience, so to speak, in the Zoom space? Who's taking the questions? Uh, if you have a question, uh, perhaps you can put it in the chat. And then I'm happy to uh, read the questions to people uh, or raise your hand. Good idea. And I, I tell, why don't you uh, call on people? And uh, because I can't see the, the hands necessarily. Sounds good. I can do that. Okay, great. Thank you. Any questions? I think Vanessa has a hand up. Yeah, I can okay, start us off. I know sometimes it's like so many great presentations, so important points were made. Um, I'm just wondering, you know, a couple of days ago, I read the um, Nairobi Manifesto from 1985. Um, and I know you know this, Margo, and I know a lot of others who are on this call, how um, particularly with regards to so-called global south formations, global east formations, the kind of anti-war feminist movement was much more stronger than it was maybe today. Um, and I'm wondering what it would need, not in terms of just who would we become, but how can we revive some of the, because I do think what it really needs is a global anti-war feminist movement urgently, right? Um, and I, I'm wondering, how can we like learn from some of the analysis because that manifesto really showed me again right it was about questions of food security what you brought up also Mabel freedom self-determination uh, women's liberation and obviously we right LGBTIQ liberation so all kinds of like gendered diversity and marginalized groups and I'm just wondering um because times at the same time do have changed. Elif, you mentioned this with the new imperialisms, right? So it's not just, we cannot just concentrate on US imperialism anymore, right? With these formations or state capitalism as in Russia, or if you think of China. So how can we imagine um, and move towards also a new, but also reflective um, global articulations of an anti-war movement, I think, which we so desperately need? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And I, I'd like to just add to that is global and how must we also understand the regional? 
And, you know, the Turks aren't new, new imperialists. Remember the Ottomans. So, and where do you begin to tell the story, right? So, okay, that's an excellent question. Uh, let's uh, take it back to the panelists. And for those of you who are in the audience, so to speak, please write in your answers here as well. Um, who would like to begin? I won't call on people this time. Uh, if, you, if you have a thoughts about how to kickstart, as it was, uh, uh, or really support uh, anti-war movement. Okay, Ella. Hey, I'll kick. I'll kickstart it. I mean, thank you so much, Vanessa and uh, Margot, for your addition to that question. I think actually, perhaps it's one of the most central questions for the fe international feminist movement. What you've just asked, so um it would be a miracle if we were able to answer it uh, in the last uh you know 10 minutes of uh this session but i think even just to give a bit of food for thought i think um well part of the answer is that it's actually a very important question and i think just that alone i think there needs to be you know mass discussions and so on over so you know on it but i think there's two things for me to for me to say here the first is that um that well i mean margot you're right in that like you know kind of like turkish imperialism in terms of its rootedness in the ottoman empire of course is not a new thing and i think not really not many people know that and especially because things have gotten so much worse for um you know some struggles in the region I think there's actually like some Ottoman Empire nostalgia that you see as well like no not understanding that actually like you know many peoples whether that was like in Palestine or other places were essentially treated like treated as slaves during the Ottoman Empire so I think that's really really that's a really important reference. And I think where to start from a Kurdish move, like movement perspective is the start is from uh, the start of civilization. So um, obviously that's like quite a long way and that start <laughs> is always moving, of course, with new research and new analysis and so on. But I think the analysis is based on that uh, women are the first colony and therefore society, or we cannot free be free without freeing the first colony that's like in a in a very like simple sim simplistic and reductionist sense um that that's basically what it is and i think therefore what um what the kurdish movement offers is uh something it refers to as the third way the the, the third way as you know during the during the cold war it was like relevant in that like you know it's not it, it's not that we, do, we shouldn't have to choose between, you know, the US and Russia. And today in the Middle East, particularly, it's also breaking the choice between, um, you know, advanced uh, capitalism and, uh, you know, fundamentalist right. Islamism. It's breaking that. It's that we come up with our own way. And actually, we already have. So it's time to also, like, unite around that and and um, and. Uh, and build that. Now there's an interesting position that the Kurdish people have in the region because the dominant, like, I guess the dominant understandings is between like whether, you know, the, the, if you're Turkish, there's like the grand history of being coming from the Ottoman empire. If you're, if you're 
an Arab, then it's like, you know, 20 something states of like that speak Arabic. Or like if you're Persian, there's also like this reference of like this grand history as well. Now, the Kurdish people, sadly, um, also experience this like quite chauvinistic approach from like many sides and therefore the alternatives that it produces also kind of like get treated with this condescension sometimes. Um, and I think that has that has been broken to an extent and is being broken every day that these little people, the Kurds, they actually have come up with this alternative and they're putting it into practice. And in terms of where do we okay. look? Margo, so, uh, uh, yeah, Isla, yeah, let's just we just have about six minutes. So let me give uh, Mabel and Mariam a chance to answer that, that question as well. Sure. Thank you so much. Sure. I know this is so exciting and there's a lot to say. So. Mariam or Mabel? I can do a quick answer to that. Um, so okay. we are seeing fascism grow throughout the world. Um, it's, it's everywhere, it's growing and growing. And so I, I kind of answer that question with a question. Is this something that we need right away or is it something that's going to happen later? Because through fascism, when we see that fascism comes to a community, we need someone to fight. Right. It's not something that we can accept. Right. And so if the fascism that was coming in Ethiopia that attacked Tigray, had Tigrayans not defended themselves and rose up and resisted, we would not I wouldn't have any family members at all. I'm not sure if I do at this point that have survived, but that's because they fought back. And so the war has come to Tigray and Tigray has fought back. And right now the war needs to end. Our people need to eat and, and such and such. But had they not fought back, had there been no fighting at all, we would not have survived. So I know that a global um, anti-war movement is needed, but is it needed in the interim? Is it needed right now? Is it an immediate urgent need? Or should we be instead thinking of ways to fight fascism, make it stop growing so that we can then survive and make sure that war does not continue later? So that that's where mm -hmm. my mind goes. Okay, and think about the relationship between the two. Yes, What's exactly. the relationship between the two? So the both end, how do we do the both end? Clearly right. both are important. Yeah, thank you, uh, Mariam. And um, I think we have to end after your response uh, for the closing comments from Vanessa and uh, her team. Oh, at half past, okay. Mariam, your vision of a, a global anti-war movement. I think Mariam lost connection. Oh, okay. Yeah, I don't see her. Okay. Maybe um, I'm so in, on Marco. I think we can take another question from the audience. No, I, I tried. Well, I was just gonna do that, Vanessa. I was awesome. just gonna Thank do that. You. Yeah. So um, any other questions from the audience? And again, also feel free to uh, type your thoughts in the chat and I'm sure uh, this, those will be recorded as well. Uh, please raise your hand uh, and uh, you can be unmuted. Anybody, any questions? Okay, why aren't you all asking questions? What's going on here? I'm happy okay, to ask Carolyn. Yes, Carolyn. Please. Um, well, first, thank you all for this such a beautiful discussion and such an urgent discussion. I really, really appreciated learn just learning more in general um, and thinking about this question of solidarity. Uh, and I am a geographer, and so I often think quite spatially about things. And so I'm wondering, like, 
if you could say a little bit about like where what are the spaces of solidarity what are the spaces through which solidarity needs to be enacted and what are the new spaces that maybe need to be created for solidarities like i'm thinking of this virtual space maybe being one kind of space in which we can create linkages across different struggles but like what what exists and what maybe is needed for for greater forms of solidarity uh any of our any and let's open this question to uh, other folks too if if you have some thoughts about this uh and not just put all the weight on our panelists uh, they've been um, giving us a lot of thoughts so if there's anybody else who wants to who has any ideas please i think this is it must be a shy crowd or something but anyway Okay, um, is Mariam back by any chance? Can you tell? No, okay. Um, wow, this is kind of unreal, but okay. Uh, Mabel and Aleph, maybe this is your uh, last words. We have one, one minute each, final words, and then we'll turn it back to the team. So, Margaret, we do have Beverly Mullings who's raised her hand. Oh, okay, Beverly Mullings. All our relations, yes. Please unmute yourself or somebody can unmute Beverly. We can't hear you, Beverly. You're still muted. Trying to unmute her. Okay, thank you. I think that was our security. Okay, go. Okay. <laughs> Fine, I couldn't unmute. Sorry about that. Uh, thank you so much for this panel, this conversation. I think it's so much needed. Uh, one of the things as you all spoke that that um, really had me thinking was, you know, I teach in a Canadian university. I meet students every day. And half of what you're speaking about, I would say the vast majority of people have no clue. They haven't followed, they don't know about it. And so it seems to me that part of organizing and struggle is also about consciousness raising in the in the grand old kind of way that we always used to do that. And I'm curious about what you think for those of us who have the privilege to be in spaces where we educate every day, like like what would what would be the most effective kinds of conversations for for consciousness raising and not just so that people know what's going on but that they feel that it's part of their world and the type of struggle that they would want to be in too mm -hmm. thanks yes it's one thing to raise consciousness and altogether another thing to get people to act based on new understandings um okay our time is up so could we leave that as a rhetorical question vanessa you're the you're the um so it's it's half past when we're supposed to stop. So, I yeah, I think uh, I, I definitely thank you so much. It's such a crucial question, and I think it's some something that we we continuously grapple with. Um, but right, how much political education matters in that moment, but also how much the turning towards 
movement organizing matters because there is no radical transformation without movement organizing. Um, but obviously also the role that popular education plays in this, where we know that people like Mariam Rava have been doing this since a very long time, Mabel and the collective she works with as well as Elif. Um, so I can just join in to really what Beverly already just um, said. Um, it's just wonderful to be in conversation with you. Thank you so much for, you know, being uh, contributing to this panel, sharing your analysis, fierce analysis, which I think was so greatly also connected mm -hmm. in a transnational um, revolutionary feminist way. And I hope we can have these conversations further because I think they do really matter um, to think also about regions that are not so often um, actually engaged with when we think about war and the many forms of war, right? This means psychological, political, um, ecological wars. Um, and that's also something for the next two SNIT miniseries uh, events that Catherine and I would like to do on the miniseries, like to, to go further with the conversation, also to pick up food security, as well as the local forms of solidarities that are happening in Kingston um, at this moment. So Catherine and I are really grateful that you participated. Margot, thank you so much as always. Um, for for your generous um, facilitation and really food for thought and also you know really um, pushing us towards our limits in terms of how we think of solidarity and I'll just uh, pass it to to Aisha who will close um, our meeting today. Thank you all. Really, this was uh, this was brilliant. I um, you know thank you very much for your time and contributions. Uh, Kevin, do you want to share the list? Uh, we are look, really looking forward to the second term. We are ending uh, SNED for this term. Uh, and after the break, you know, we are working really hard with Caroline and Monique, uh, you know, to uh, provide an amazing list for next term, including uh, continuing with this uh, uh, mini series. Yeah, thank you so much, everyone. I just want to echo what Aicha and Vanessa have just said. So thank you, Miriam, Elif, Mabel, Margot, Catherine, and Vanessa. Um, we were really honored to have you here with us and share your experiences and calls for really urgent action. Um, we appreciate your generosity in, in, in taking the time to speak with us. So thank you very much. Um, so we, yes, thank you. Um, uh, so we are hoping to continue this conversation next term and we'll have more information about that for you as, as things get planned. Um, we also have some other kind of like regular SNID events planned that I've put in the chat there. Uh, we will um, advertise these as we secure dates and just pay attention to your SNID emails. We'll be updating our website as well with that information in our social media accounts. So just please pay attention to what's going on next term. It's gonna be wonderful. And we look forward to continuing this conversation with Vanessa and Catherine. Um, we really appreciate you helping to organize all of this. It's been, it's been really great. So thank you. Bye everyone.